how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Neil Marshall Stevens has been writing since he was 13 years old. He's got over 45 credits on IMDb, and he's written well over 80 to 100 movies that aren't even listed. He's a graduate of NYU and began his career as a consultant and story editor for Laurel Entertainment. One of his first jobs included the pilot to the syndicated series Monsters. The veteran writer is also known for working on The Vernon Jones Story, Precious Victims, Stephen King's The Stand, and the Puppet Master series, along with Hellraiser Debtor and Dark Castle's remake of 13 Ghosts. In this interview, he talks about his many years as a horror writer, along with his new book, A Sense of Dread, Getting Under the Skin of Horror Screenwriting. Oh my gosh, I have been writing screenplays. I think I wrote my first screenplay when I was 13 years old. I have been writing for a long, long time. Um, I, way back before there even were any uh, screenwriting books. I think the back when I think Elias Egri's book on screenwriting was the only game in town. I remember at some point I bought uh, I bought a, a screenplay, uh, a teleplay from an old Star Trek episode that was just totally inappropriate as a guide for writing screenplays. Um, yeah, back then you could order screenplays, you could buy them, but they weren't real screenplays. They were these kind of, they were the screenplays that were written after the fact that they would send off for copyright purposes. So they had nothing real, no real connection at all to the actual screenplays that screenwriters would write. You know, they, they were not at all useful mm. for people who were trying to learn how to write screenplays. Um, so, I mean, I, I went to Hampshire College and, and wrote screenplays there. But again, 
that their emphasis was really more on on independent filmmaking and documentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, I went from there to um, NYU grad film, um, but there was no screenwriting program there at the time. Mm -hmm. This was um, early, you know, late seventies, early eighties. It was really the production school, which which was invaluable because it, you, you they made you go out and make movies, so you really got a firsthand experience in how to do that. And you had to obviously you had to do everything. You had to write write your own screenplays. You had to go out and shoot them and cut them and, and all of that. So the experience of doing that was invaluable. Um, but then when you were done back then they pretty much kicked you out the door and you had to go and, and just do whatever you did back in New York. Mm. Um, and one of my, uh, the, the camera teacher back then, uh, one of the things that he said to me was that when you came out of film school, um, if you really wanted to earn a living, you should expect to take maybe 10 years mm. before you were actually earning a living in the business. And that's just about how long it took after I came out of out of graduate school. Hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I delivered TVs off the back of a truck for a friend of mine. I operated teleprompters, which was a terrible job. I came back to NYU and I, I, I ran their equipment room for like six years. And they had a computer that they used to keep track of the inventory, the stuff coming in and going out. But it also had a word processing program, which by the way, was WordStar, which shows you how old the equipment was, how old the computers were. WordStar is a terrible word processing program. And, you know, it had like a dot star printer, but it was actually like the first computer I used to write my screenplays on, you know, and I was all this time throughout all these years, I was writing screenplays and I'd managed to get a few things optioned that of mm. course never got made. Um, but at, around this point, there was a company called Laurel Entertainment that operated out of New York. Um, they were, that was the company that did Tales from the Dark Side. Um, and their, uh, their story editor was a, a great guy named Dave Allen. He was also, um, a critic for uh, the village voice and was, I believe a Dominican friar. Mm. Uh, he lived, he lived at a, you know, with the brothers uh, in a, uptown and sort of an equivalent of a monastery, but he was a really fascinating guy and was a great guy. And I'd, uh, I'd written a screenplay, a horror screenplay and um, someone uh, I, I knew knew him and invited me to submit the screenplay to him. I did. He invited me in to talk about it. He liked it. it wasn't for them, but he said, "Why don't you submit some ideas for this new series we're doing, which is Monsters? Hmm. Um, it's a follow up to Tales from the Dark Side, which they'd finished." And so I went, you know, and there was also uh, at the time I was work, still working at NYU. There was a, a, a teacher there who also was connected to um to laurel she did the same thing she was working there so i went in i i had written up a bunch of ideas pitches for monsters i also had another idea that i hadn't written down but i figured what the heck i pitched that idea that was the idea that they liked and they bought it mm. and i wrote that idea 
that was my first professional sale. It turned out to be the, you know, I, the first episode, they, they, it was the premiere episode. I went in, David McCallum was starring in it. I went to these, the set, I met David McCallum, Dick Smith, the, the famous makeup artist did the makeup on it. I got to meet Dick Smith, by the way, Dick Smith, when he was really young, had apparently lost one of his fingers, had lost, and because it was so young, they'd removed the bones leading into the palm of his hand. So one of his hands, he only had three fingers, but it had healed perfectly well. So one of his hands only had three fingers on it. And it was just like, it looked like a perfectly normal hand, but with only three fingers. So it was just like, perfectly healed hand just sort of that in itself was a kind of weird effect um but he was a great guy david mccallum was a wonderful guy to meet you know i'd known him back from man from uncle days um and it was the premiere episode of that first season of monsters was my episode oh. um um and then i mean all this time i was still working full-time at at running the equipment room at, uh, at NYU, which, by the way, is a soul-killing job um, because you're dealing with the biggest bunch of spoiled brats in the world, and they always they treat you like crap running the equipment room. But anyway, um, and then uh, tragically, David Allen passed away, um, and the the VP there, Mitch Gallen, called me up and asked me if I, for the remainder of that first season of Monsters, could step in and take over his job as sort of, it was called creative consultant. It was sort of like being a story editor on the show. Mm -hmm. Essentially, I had to read the scripts, do notes, and basically pick the remaining episodes for that season of Monsters, wow. which I did for that year. And then at the end of the year, I came, I finally left um, left NYU, which I did not mourn. And I went over to Laurel and I started working there full time as their creative consultant slash senior story editor. I worked on the next two seasons of Monsters, wrote their premiere episodes for both seasons and rewrote episodes and picked all the remaining episodes for Monsters, did a lot of other work for Laurel. And I was there for a, a bunch of years um, and I worked on the, the stand and the Vernon John story and the Langoliers. Sorry, was the Langoliers was not very good. Um, I, I could go into ep epics on what, what, what went wrong with the Langoliers. The stand turned out quite well, I think. Um, and uh, then as a result of mergers and acquisitions through Viacom and Paramount, whatever, Laurel was shut down. Mm. Um, this is what happens when West Coast companies uh, merge. They like to sacrifice the East Coast companies because they can't hear the screams of agony when the East Coast companies die. They just get rid of them. Um, it makes them feel efficient. We're closing down companies. So they closed down Laurel and killed it. Um, and so everyone in Laurel was out of a job and I was out of a job. And um, then uh, I was on unemployment. I had my wife and my two kids and 
very little work on uh, on the East Coast back then. But I, I was familiar with um, Full Moon Entertainment. I'm sure you're familiar with them. They, Charlie Band and um, early on I had, uh, I'd sent some stuff to, to them. Um, I, to their then production person, Debbie Dion, uh, who was, I, I think, married to Charlie at the time. And so I, I, I sense I communicated with her and, um, and, and was interested to know if they were looking uh, for writers. And uh, she got back to me and said, yeah, we're, we, we're willing to hire writers, um, but we only pay $3,000 for a feature. And I said, well, that's, they pay a lot more than that to write an episode of, uh, an episode of Monsters. And that's only, that's like, you know, 24 minutes, yeah. uh, you know, and, you know, with, with like the initial residuals, that's like, I can get twice as much as that for an episode of Monsters. It doesn't seem like a very good deal to write a feature for, for $3,000, but, you know, thanks anyway. And then my insurance ran out and I didn't have any other way to make any money. So I went back and I said, you know, yeah, okay, I'll do it. But it, it can't be like the usual development deal where you expect it to write like five passes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, I'll, for, for $3,000, I'll write a pass. If you want to rewrite, you got to pay me for the rewrite. It's got to be pay as you go because it doesn't make any sense to do it any other way. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I, I started writing features for Full Moon. And by the time I was done, I'd written like well over 50 features for Full Moon in the course of the next few years. Um, and they're like 85 page features and they didn't do a lot of rewriting. Um, so, and of the 80, of the, the 50, it's more than 50 because every so often I still do it now, is Full Moon has become, they have a lot of subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. And I said, as, as the business has changed and gotten cheaper and more marginal, they, they've gone from, you know, there was a lot of, uh, obviously there was a huge home market for Full Moon and then that kind of, that disappeared and they've, they've gone now to streaming, which is a much less lucrative market. Mm -hmm. And so the, the movies have gotten much shorter and shooting schedules are cheaper and more less expensive but they're still they're still cranking them out and i still i still work for charlie um but shorter projects and he does these kind of streaming things um but i mean by now i must have written 75 80 things for him over the years um i mean i've written that many they've shot maybe 60 to 65 of them so it's a, just a huge amount of work under under a variety of different names. And, you know, you go to my IMD page, you can find tons of them. Uh, not everything that I, you know, they've listed a lot, but I've written a bunch more. Um, and of course, while I was writing for Full Moon, every time there was a break, I would be writing my own stuff because, you know, at the amount that he paid, you can't make a living at it. It's because you'd have to, I mean, while I could write a feature in just about a week, he didn't ask me to write a feature a week because they weren't, they were turning out a lot, but not that many. So I, I had to, I had to break out into other things. So 
I would be writing my own stuff. And of course, I, I was fine with the writing, but not so great with the marketing. So I managed to convince my wife, um, who was really good doing things like cold calling. I would come home and find her in the middle of a conversation with someone that was going on for 20 minutes. And it turned out that she was just like ordering something from someone over the phone and got mixed up in a conversation. So she was really good at doing that sort of thing. Um, so I convinced her to be my manager. So she just used her maiden name. And um, I had written a, a science fiction romance and she managed to get, uh, that was optioned at Universal, didn't, didn't really hit. I mean, we did ultimately sell it, but it never got made. And I'd written a, a horror film um, called Deader. Mm -hmm. And uh, she managed, she then, she, uh, sent that to someone that uh, at Stan Winston's company um, and a fellow named David Greathouse and he really responded to it and she said and he said do you mind if I slip this to a few people and so he sent it to a few people that he knew one of whom was uh, an exec at, um, at Dimension and that guy really loved it and said, uh, you mind if I, I show it to Bob Weinstein? And that was on a Friday, I think. Bob Weinstein called Judy that Saturday and said, you know, I've read, I, I read like half of it. That's really the fucking greatest script I ever saw. Come in on Monday. I want us, we want to talk to you about it. So I, we went in uh, to Dimension that Monday. I finished the script and we got a deal for half a million dollars right then. I mean, they, we didn't, at that time, we didn't have an agent. I mean, we, and we, we had, we had, we had a lawyer that we'd gotten through um, Richard Rubenstein at Laurel and we couldn't get it. We literally, we couldn't get her on the phone while we were in the middle of negotiating this deal. We ultimately got her on the phone later. Um, but Judy made the deal and we, we got, and they, they, since we didn't have any manager lawyer, they cut us a check and they gave us a check for half a million dollars within the next day or so. So it was the only time we ever got it. Like, here, here's your check for half a million dollars. So that was that was kind of incredible. Ultimately, we got we got a development deal and the movie didn't. Ha it, it ultimately happened as a, uh, they turned it into a Hellraiser sequel, which wasn't the greatest outcome. But the movie, the, the script went all over town, and I was like, for a while, I was like the flavor of the month. So it it made my career, even though the the mm -hmm. ultimate outcome of the project wasn't ideal. It's like, gee, I only got a half million dollars. I was, you know, I'm not complaining about it. it was <laughs> it was a, it was a fantastic outcome for the project. So, um, and then uh, from that, I got uh, Thirteen Ghosts, and you know, my. My career was made, although, you know, as, as with many careers in the business, it involved writing a lot of projects, mm -hmm. working with a lot of problems that never ultimately got made, which, you know, it, it's, it's not unusual for a lot of writers in the business um, that you spend the majority of the time writing things that never get made. It's different now. The, the, the complexion of the business um, has moved much more away from that model of a lot of development and a little production. I mean, maybe you know better than I do, 
But my sense is that it's moved much more in the direction of writer directors, mm-hmm. um, that that's much more what they're looking for. They're looking, they're looking for that united package of one person with one vision. Here is the script. I'm going to direct it. And that's what they, that it seems to me much more. That's what people are looking for. Whether you come as a united package, here is the writer, here is a director, and here is the united package. They don't want to take a script and go looking for a director or producer and put it together themselves. The, that is the whatever that source of financing is, whether it's a studio or whether it's some other financing source, they want you to come with that united vision already together. They don't want to have to do that work. Mm-hmm. It's not it's very different from the way I started. Um, so that that's my sense of how things have changed. <laughs> so you were you were kind of prolific out of necessity, at least in the early days. Yeah. I know you do some teaching at Screenwriter University now. Can you teach someone to be prolific? If so, what might you tell them? Um, well, I mean, I started that that prolific nature, I think, began at Laurel because we had to turn out um, whole seasons of, of monsters on schedule and at a very, and, and again, it's small, these tiny little stories with very limited budgets and very limited schedules and very limited locations and casts and all the rest. And so the process, it, it, there's a kind of steamroller process going on. We had two production uh, teams, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. And, and we had to divide those up and decide which episodes are going to go to the West, which episodes are going to stay in the East. And all of that had to be done continuously. So these, we had to assign scripts, they had to come in. If they weren't coming in, I had to pull them back and I had to do the rewriting myself because it had to go. Hmm. So if, things, if, if the script came in and it was not what it had to be, we either had to assign it to a writer uh, to get rewritten so that it was where it needed to be. And if it wasn't, I had to take it back and I had to do the writing myself. And the point is, there were writers who were really good at some things. Um, we had a writer who, you know, we had writers who were really good at structure. So they would, if we assign them a story, I knew that I could get it back and the dialogue was always going to be terrible, but it didn't matter. I could always fix that. The structure would be there. Great. Structure's there. You know, in, in a day I could fix the dialogue and it was good to go. Um, and there were other writers that would come back and it was just, it was a mess. And the question is, is it worthwhile even giving them notes mm. and then waiting for them to come back and it would still be a mess. And it was like, yes, yeah, times, times that a mess. Just give, give them the check and I'll rewrite it and it'll be good to go. So it's just when you, when you have to do it, um, you know, and, and a lot of times, um, we had projects that came back that were just uh, that were just a disaster, and and it depends. Certain writers um, you knew you could rely on, um, so when, when the schedules were tight, you always knew you could give this give a project to a certain writer. You knew you were going to get something back that was that was good to go. We we had uh, our our VP um, loved to go to the 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 New York stage 
thing had a subscription to it and loved to go to see the theatrical stuff and so he had a habit of saying let's try this this new uh uh stage writer this theatrical writer we'll give him a project it was always terrible because the i mean and i am not trying to knock theatrical writers but the pacing of writing for the stage is totally different than writing for screen or writing for theater there's so much long much more long-winded and so those things always came back and they were always wrong the pacing was always wrong. This, the, the, the dialogue always went on forever and it never worked. Um, so it was like, I knew that whenever when it was like, oh, we're giving something to uh, one, of our, one of our stage writers. Great, that's great. Cause I knew it was gonna come back and I was, I was gonna have to rewrite the whole thing. So it's just, you know, some novel writers they had they they had a handle on it. Some did not, um, because again, when you're writing your own, when you're rewriting your own story for the screen, you have to have the flexibility to know that you have to leave a lot of it behind, and get and kind of take it back to first principles, start again, and and write it back up to what it needs to be to be a a, a dramatic work. Um, and some writers can do that. And some pieces of writing are like that to start with. Um, other writers can't quite let go of their original take on the material. Um, so it, it depends on the writer. Um, and some, some of them I just had to, I just said like, nah, I just got to completely rewrite it. And, you know, and depending on the, on the work, sometimes, you know, a lot of times I, I would, a few of them I got credit on, mostly I didn't, just because, you know, when you get credit, you get paid, you have to, or in turn, you have to share the amount that you get paid. And um, it, it wasn't worth it to me to have to fight for that, it's, you know, uh, you just, you just do it. It's, it's just part of the job to, to do that. Um, with, with that kind of output, did you have to essentially pursue every idea you had? It sounds like you were what you said a minute ago, you're willing to start a story and, and know that you might have to change it based on where it goes. Like, what did you often start with an outline or an idea? And then how did you know you could finish it? I guess. Um, well, uh, I mean, at, at, in, in monsters, you, you had, you had a, generally it was just like a page or two is the treatment you always yeah they always it was always building to a twist building to it to some kind of a if you didn't have that you didn't have the idea mm. if you didn't have the if you didn't if it didn't run to some kind of a twist or turn in a, in a monsters episode um it, it, it didn't really have it wasn't a monsters episode you needed that that kind of sting in the tail that payoff of some kind because they were very short form uh, stories and I know some people would submit something to us that didn't have that and it just it didn't feel like it, it was just kind of like eh, there's nothing really to it um, and, and and again because we had an open door policy ton, everyone would send us everything so I mean we got you know we got like dozens of little monster under the bed stories and it was like yeah, there's nothing 
you know we all we did we did a monster under the bed story and tales from the dark side so it's like i guess you didn't watch monsters and you didn't watch tales from the dark side you wouldn't be sending us this idea and you know obviously most of this stuff was just complete completely amateur stuff and we had interns that that read most of that stuff um but you you end up if you read enough stuff that's really bad um you don't have to read a lot to to just next 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 um and you i think you just you you develop a kind of instinct not only for other people's ideas but for your own ideas it, it's what i call an idea that's fruitful um because i know like sometimes you'll get an idea you'll get something that that feels at first like an idea but then if you if you start just scratching away at it you realize nah this is not it isn't actually an idea it just has the kind of surface appearance of an idea it's not really a premise it it it's not it's not fruitful in the sense of it of it opening up to another to really a lot of ideas and a lot of possibilities i'll give you an example i found out a time ago that if you get sick like if you have some kind of serious illness it it interrupts the way in which your fingernails grow so that as 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 your fingernails grow out there'll be like a little like like a kind of interruption like a line of of malformed growth in all your fingernails as your fingernails grow out there'll be this kind of little line across your fingernails so that's an interesting idea and i thought well gee wouldn't it be interesting if a doctor in a small town notices that everyone in the entire town as they come in he notices that everyone in town has developed that same little interruption in the growth of their fingernails and it's in his fingernails it's in his wife's fingernails his kids fingernails everybody in town has that same funny thing in their fingernails this is gee obviously a certain number of weeks or months ago something odd happened in the town that caused and i said gee that's an interesting idea and then i thought you know what actually no it isn't because the real idea isn't the funny fingernails the real idea the premise isn't that it's whatever the hell it was that caused that thing to happen and uh, the the minute i started digging even a little bit below that idea i realized well what is it it's like this this waste in the water or it's space aliens or it's some government thing or it's some other thing that we've seen a thousand times before and unless i could come up with something that was actually as interesting as that funny thing in the fingernails i didn't actually have an idea and there wasn't anything else all i had was just the fingernail thing which yeah in itself is kind of intriguing but it wasn't the actual idea for the story there was no idea for the story and that it wasn't it wasn't what i what i called fruitful it didn't open up 
into anything that was more interesting than just that one little bit of story. Mm. And so that's, that for me has always been the test. Does the idea open up into other intriguing ideas? And so the, uh, the thing that I sold to, to, to Monsters originally, um, the thing that, that sold was this thing called the Fever Man, which is the idea that there's this kind of what they think at first is a faith healer. And what the faith healer does is he has this kind of crystal, this sort of funny magical stone. And what he does is he can, the way he fights the disease in someone is he uses the stone, he can pull the fever out of someone. It becomes a living thing. Mm. And then he has to actually physically fight it. <laughs> and if he kills it, the person gets better. If not, the thing kills him, the person dies and he dies. So it's a fight to the death. He physically has to fight the thing. And it's like, gee, that's kind of an interesting idea. And it's like, and the, the, they come with a little girl. They ask the, 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 the doctor is the skeptic. The other guy says is also doesn't really believe it, but he doesn't have any choice. So the whole thing, it develops in all sorts of different ways that's interesting. How the mythology works. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 it, it felt like a fully blown mythology that has its own rules, its own structure. What happens if he wins? What happens if he's wounded? What happens if he dies? What happens to the stone? If he, it, the whole thing just seemed fully laid out. Mm -hmm. It was, it, it turned out, I mean, it just struck me as an interesting idea, but it, it turned out to be a fruitful idea. And it worked even, it just, it, they, you say, they always say ideas write themselves, but when you say it it write itself, it means that it's a fruitful idea that just seems to present you with uh, lots of possibilities to write. So you immediately, you never feel like you're hitting a dead end when you have a fruitful idea. It presents you with lots of possibilities, lots of ways you can go. And that's why when you, when you talk about like a, a premise, when you just, when you say, when you suggest an idea to someone and they get excited, it's because it's presenting ideas and thoughts and possibilities to them. And they think, oh, well, maybe this can happen. Maybe that could happen. Maybe go here. Maybe it can go there. They're excited too, because they're immediately seeing the possibilities as opposed to like these surface ideas that say, oh, well, that's interesting. But then it dries out, it kind of dies on the vine. So mm. you always want to start with the idea, start with the premise that's going to be fruitful. Mm. Needs like a, a series of what ifs afterward, you can keep getting yeah. deeper and deeper and deeper. So tell me about um, your teaching, like what, what are you teaching exactly online and, and how do you differentiate yourself from other books and courses and that type of thing? Okay, well, I teach, I teach at Screen Rescue, but I'm also teaching at uh, David Lynch uh, Film School at uh, at Maharishi Institute, uh, Maharishi International University, mm -hmm. um, and I started there um, because uh, uh, the head of the, the school, Dorothy Rampalski, I knew from NYU, and she knew that I was interested in horror, and she had a bunch of students there who were also interested in uh, in working on horror screenplays. So I started there. Uh, mentoring those students and again this is all 
remote. Um, and so I, I work with them. Uh, they send me their scripts. I review them, comment on them as they develop their scripts, and then give them notes. Uh, and we develop the scripts together. And I've been, you know, going back, you know, five years now. Um, again, developing those screenplays, some of them now horror, some not. And, uh, you know, they're great bunch of students. It's anything from three to five or six students per semester developing their scripts and, and working toward having finished finished projects. And with, with Screenwriters University, there's a, a set curriculum. They, they have to submit assignments, which I can then comment on as they, as they go. Um, and it's a course in horror screenwriting and also a course in science fiction and uh, fantasy screenwriting. Again, there's set curricula that I, uh, and so they have assignments that I, that I comment on as they, as they submit. Um, and uh, much more hands-on with, with, um, with MIU because we actually have Zoom courses together with Screenwriters University. Um, it's just, they submit their homework, which I then give them notes on. Um, so, I mean, it, uh, again, one is a little less personal than the other. Um, we have, we have uh, face to, it's face to face like this with, with uh, Zoom conferences at, uh, at MIU. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it uh, I, I think it, it works well. Um, and it's, it's been very exciting, very stimulating. There's some really talented, uh, some really talented students have come out of, uh, have come out of the David Lynch Academy, and it's a very eclectic group of students as well. Um, you, and yeah, go ahead. Are there some modern changes you've seen in the horror genre? Because I know it's changed a bit. It seems like it's more emotionally depth, maybe in the last couple of years. But do you find that to be yeah, true? I do. I think there, the the percentage of really intelligent. Um, of really smart and sophisticated horror movies over the last, you know, five, six years of movies like Hereditary and The Lighthouse, and, uh, the movies by someone, people like Jennifer Kent. And those, those movies are really just, they're excellent movies in themselves and really great horror movies as well. Um, or something like, I mean, you think of something like Hereditary mm. uh, and The Witch, and just those movies are really just fantastic. Um, and and the way in which horror itself has been integrated effectively into mainstream movies. Mm. Um, I was talking to someone else about the use of, of horror and horror tropes into something like 1917. Mm-hmm. Which has some of the this just the, the most terrifying sequences, um, the, the 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 first foray out across no man's land, and 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 rushing through the, the movement through the the bunker when it starts to collapse and the stuff with the rats is just incredibly terrifying, hmm. um, and and the construction and the, the the structure and the execution of those scenes owes a tremendous amount to an understanding of how the use of horror and the sense of dread works in, in those scenes and sequences. 
We'll just do one or two more. I ask a lot of people kind of about their origin story and, and advice for new people today, but I'm, I'm actually more curious about longevity. What do you think about career longevity? How have you managed to keep working over these years? Well, I, I part of it is the fact that I maybe I'm just not suited to do anything else other than write. It's all I've, it's really all I've ever done is write. I'm not sure what else I would do if I, if I wasn't writing. And, you know, sometimes, um, I mean, well, I guess I do teach, but I mean, I teach writing. So what are you going to do? Um, I mean, sometimes it's, it's paid me very well, sometimes not so well, but I mean, I've always managed to, to earn my living at it. It's these days, it's much harder, and maybe you you have a, a your own sense of that. Um, the development money is not as present these days as it was, not for writers or producers. That whole development field has really drawn back. Um, it's not what it used to be. Um, I think a lot of writers these days in the same way that a lot of midlist novelists probably need to have some other way to keep themselves alive for most of their careers um i mean i was i was really very fortunate to kind of catch that last wave where i could just be a writer and and keep myself alive um i mean I think for uh, a generation of television writers, it's possible still to do that. Um, you know, if you're, if you're writing in series television, but even in series television, if you don't have something in between series, you can, you can find yourself in trouble. But for instance, I knew I, you know, because I, for a while I was part of the Horror Writers Association, I knew a lot of writers who were really well-known writers who'd, who'd written, you know, dozens of horror novels and were well-known in, in the field who nevertheless always had day jobs. They were teachers, they were lawyers, they were accountants or whatever. They had to be because the income they made from writing novels was not enough to keep them alive. And even, you know, most, most of the actors that people know from movies, not big movies, but sort of mid-list actors who have day jobs. They have to, um, you know, they work at the post office, they work wherever they work, and they work at jobs that allow them to go out and audition and they, they do their job. You know, they, they'll, they'll be in a movie, they could be in a supporting role, or they can be in a starring role that, where the, the, the job may, you know, may only be five or six days, and then they go back to their regular job. Uh, because they have to, um, because they're not, the jobs are not steady enough and the pay isn't steady enough to keep them alive full time. Yeah. Um, I mean, the point is these days I, I have my uh, guild pension from a lot of those earlier works as I was, I was writing very steadily and earning very good money for many years. And then, you know, Post post strike, um, the jobs the, it really was kind of a sea change. I mean, maybe you had that sense. 
there was really kind of a sea change in the development community. Hmm. And I think, I think the industry kind of very often, whether, whether we win strikes or lose them, the industry takes, looks at strikes as an opportunity to kind of bring about changes and, and retractions Mm. within the industry they it allows them to to clear out what they what they perceive as old wood that is development deals that weren't working and stuff like that they they use that as an excuse to kill all those deals and in the same way they pulled back on a lot of development deals i know a lot of uh producers as well the you know and development deals that were that disappeared and production companies, development companies that kind of went away because um, they didn't, you know, studios and they didn't want to have to support them anymore. They didn't. They just, they vanished. And in the process, a lot of writers who were previously relied on those development deals were no longer able to support themselves. And a lot of them, I think, took early retirement. And a lot of them... We're, we're just struggling to find other ways to make work, to make a living. Uh, and, and of course, many writers were doing other kinds of things. They were writing novels, they were writing articles, they were doing nonfiction. And that's, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I think it's great if you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, but for writers who are writing, you know, strictly um, screenplays, it was, it was tough, um, tough for a lot of people. Uh, so it, it's it's a brave new it's a brave or maybe not so brave brave new world. Um, it's a world that favors writer writer directors, writer producers, um, and people who um, who potentially write in a variety of different fields. Mm -hmm. um, because one, um, it it supports the idea of of writers who potentially own their own material. That is, if you've written a novel and then go out with it as a screenplay, by, by default, you are your producer because you're the owner of the material. Mm -hmm. Of course, that presumes that you've written a novel that people want to produce. Um, not every novel is, 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 is appropriate for, for production. You know, hmm. but sometimes it is. Same thing with graphic novels. If you're involved in the writing of graphic novels, that also is a potential, it gives you a, a step up in terms of material that, that might be producible. Um, there are all sorts of potential um, ways, ways ahead, but certainly um, opening up the field in terms of writing different things, hmm. writing in different markets um, is, can only help you can only help your career and familiarizing yourself with how the business works is always is always going to help you not being naive about that is is tremendously useful um so uh that's that's my advice to, to every to every would-be writer is is to know how the business works to understand how relationships work, to understand how studios and sources of financing work, um, you know, and I, I've I've known so many beginning writers who sit down and write, you know, 
$250 million spec scripts. And I just think, what are you going to do with that? Who's going to, who's going to buy it? It's just, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, and it's not like I haven't written my own, you know, you know, $150 million spec script. I don't know what I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with it either. You know, but what are you going to do? So, Perfect. Well, thanks for your time again. Is there anything we missed or anything else you wanted to promote or talk about you're doing these days? Uh, well, um, I have, uh, I've written a book uh, called uh, a sense of dread getting under the skin of uh, uh, horror screenwriting, which is uh, available from uh, Barnes and Noble um, or uh, Amazon, or you can order it directly from um, Michael Weiss productions. Um, they're available all online. So you can just check those out and you can get it from Michael Weiss productions for a discount. So um, you can check that out and uh, many thanks. Yeah. And does this come from your, your, your current teaching more about your history? What, like what's some aspects in the book that maybe we haven't um, seen before? Um, well, what I've, what I've tried to do is to dig a little bit deeper into um, the nature of fear, the biological and psychological and cultural basis of what it is that people find um, what it is, the causes of fear. Um, so I, to lay that out so that we, you know, when you, when you sit down to try to write a scary movie, you have more of an understanding of what it is that, that makes us afraid, what the sense of dread itself is. Um, I've, you know, back when I was working at, uh, at Laurel, because we specialize in horror, people would send us their, uh, their horror screenplays and you just read hundreds of these things that are just not even in the slightest bit scary and the same thing at the time when i when i wrote debtor um part of the reason i wrote it was just in frustration to the fact that i just had seen so many horror movies that were not even in the slightest bit scary and i said you know what i should really sit down and write a movie that was scary to me um which i did and you know just so many people responded to me saying, you know, it's like, you know, this, this script kept me up at night. It was terrifying mm -hmm. because I, I, I thought a little bit more deeply, I think, than most people about what the things were that actually scared people um, and sort of the, the biological basis of horror, the, the kind of things that scare us, that scare other living creatures um, and the, the psychological basis of horror. Um, and for instance, um, there's this thing, uh, known as the, the, uh, the sensory homunculus, uh, which is something that came up, uh, which is very similar to like childhood drawings of human beings, very big face, big hands and feet, almost no body, because that's how our nerve endings, it's the equivalent of our nerve ending creation of ourselves hmm. there's lots of nerve endings to our faces our feet our mouths our fingers our toes our feet and those are the parts of our bodies that we are particularly sensitive to in the same way that any kind of injury to our eyes our nose our teeth our fingers our feet we respond to that instinctively so if you think about movies where people's teeth have been shattered hmm. 
or in, in Chinatown where the nose is slit or anything where damage to the eyes or where someone's fingers are broken or crushed or the very disappointing sequel to The Exorcist. There's one shot where someone where he puts his foot in some water and spikes come up through his feet. Those are all memorably horrifying images, but it all goes back to the biology of the fear associated to the nerve endings that go to those particular parts of our bodies, to that sensory homunculus. Um, and you have what's called, uh, again, something we share with animals called being curiously afraid. Um, which is that when something ambiguous comes into our surrounding and it works for cattle or cats or us, we can't just run away from everything and we can't just ignore things that we don't understand that have intruded into our surroundings. So what do we have to do? We want to investigate them, but we investigate them with every nerve ending on end. And we see that in hundreds of movies. It's the walk down the shadowy corridor toward the half open door or down the long alley. We have to walk down that alley, even though everyone in the audience is saying, no, get the hell out of here. But we can't at the same time, we need them to go down that alley. We need them to find out what's down there. The long walk is triggering that influence, that curiously afraid instinct that's built into our biology. And there are all sorts of things. Of course, the startle reflex that we've seen, we see it in cats, we see it in dogs, we see it in, in animals of all kinds. And of course, it's in us. And it's been exploited in hundreds of movies. Um, the thing that makes us, that makes the audience jump. Of course, the challenge is you can do that on the screen, but you can't really do it on the page. And so you can approximate it you can always put in, he jumps in exclamation point. But of course, reading it, you're not going to jump. And so the challenge is you can't write a script that depends just on jump scares and expect it to work as effectively as it's going to work on the screen. You have to go for, for things that rely instead on things like moments of being curiously afraid, because that will work on the page. We can be drawn down the corridor on the page. We can be, we can have that sense of fear on the page in the same way that you can read a terrifying novel and, and be led to a moment of surprise, a terrifying twist, ratcheting where you build tension, build tension, build tension, and have a sudden reverse. That works on the page in the same way that it works on screen, just not the jump. So there are all sorts of approaches that work um, and that I develop and explore in, in, in the book. Um, what works on the page, what works on the screen, um, and all sorts of, and we talk about phobias, we talk about, um, psychological fears, talk about cultural fears, uh, talk about urban legends, um, try as much as I possibly can to explore the full range of, of fears and um, things that, that have made us afraid down through the years at every level. 
Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.